Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare with Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter, a show where we speak to the top thought leaders in health innovation, health policy, care delivery, and the great minds who are shaping the healthcare of the future. This week, Mark and Margaret speak with Dr. Rachel Levine, Assistant Secretary for Health at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the first transgender presidential appointee elevated to a high-level post in U.S. government. Dr. Levine discusses the Biden administration's emphasis on health equity for the LGBT community and vulnerable populations. And as a pediatrician with an emphasis on mental health for kids, she examines the impact of the pandemic on child health and the need to advance telehealth to reach more people. Factcheck.org's Lori Robertson checks in, the managing editor, looking at misstatements about health policy in the public domain, separating the fake from the facts. And we end with a bright idea that's improving health and well-being in everyday lives. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, stay tuned for our interview with Dr. Rachel Levine here on Conversations on Healthcare. We're speaking today with Dr. Rachel Levine, Assistant Secretary for Health at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the first openly transgender person to be confirmed by the Senate. Dr. Levine previously served as the state of Pennsylvania's Secretary of Health and before that, Physician General. Dr. Levine was Professor of Pediatrics and Psychiatry at Penn State College of Medicine, Chief of the Division of Adolescent Medicine and Eating Disorders at Penn State Hershey Medical Center, Dr. Levine, we welcome you today to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. And you know, your personal story really informs your mission at HHS. And you've joined the agency at what I'd say is really concerning time, as there's a record number of anti-trans bills that have been making their way through state houses, although there is some good news that the uh, Supreme Court just uh, decided not to take up a challenge in one case involving trans youth uh, choice of school bathrooms. And I'm wondering if you could talk about the dangerous level. Uh, I think you've called this some some draconian measures that are happening at a number of state houses and how they could impact health uh, equity, health outcomes for the LGBTQ community, especially for uh, youth populations. Well, uh, I I do feel that these bills are draconian. I think that the genesis of a lot of this legislation, unfortunately, is political uh, and that it's being used as a potential wedge issue in the next election. But what you have to remember is that this is directly impacting the health and well-being of transgender youth. Transgender youth are very vulnerable and are at risk of harassment and bullying and so it, it is really particularly important for us to, to, to advocate for transgender youth. And these laws prohibiting their participation in activities and sports, and, and the most egregious in terms of uh, preventing their access to gender-affirming medical care, um, really are going to harm transgender youth. Well, Dr. Levine, you've advocated for a long time for a more integrated approach to child and adolescent health, and that we have certainly seen. What a terrible toll. Uh, It's taken on the mental health of children and adolescents in the community health center world that we're part of. This integration has always been kind of the norm, not the exception, but not so much around the country or as a standard of practice. How uh, how is HHS going to address 
the crisis of child and adolescent behavioral health needs in the country going forward? And what models do you think are going to be most effective? Now, we are very concerned about the mental health challenges that we were going to see during the COVID-19 pandemic and as we eventually come out of the pandemic. Um, adolescent mental health concerns um, have been really part of uh, my career uh, through academic medicine and into public health. So what we're going to be doing is actually through the Secretary's Behavioral Health Coordinating Council. So Secretary Becerra um, mm -hmm. is very concerned about these issues and he has brought back um, a cross-cutting council, uh, which, which will uh, work with collaboration with all of our different offices throughout HHS. Uh, one of the specific subcommittees and priorities of this council is uh, child and adolescent mental health. You know, COVID-19 has been such a challenge for young people, and you can think of it as almost being a generational trauma uh, for, for young people with the challenges that they have faced. And so we're going to be working with, uh, with experts um, across the country on how we like data about that issue and then how we intervene and help young people struggling with their mental health concerns. Well, the pandemic has really laid bare the flaws within our American health system and how they've disproportionately impacted not just the LGBT community, but vulnerable populations across the board. And I know you're going to be participating in a panel this week on how community health centers can help develop protocols that are vital to serving these populations. And I wonder if you could talk about some of the more important initiatives under the Biden administration aimed at addressing health inequalities and the role that community health centers can play in this work all across the country. Health equity is an absolute priority of, of President Biden and the administration, as well as a priority of, of Secretary Becerra. Uh, we also have another coordinating council, the Health Disparities Council, of which I'm very pleased to be one of the co-chairs. And we're going to be looking at the impact of COVID-19, um, as well as many different other health equity issues for vulnerable populations. I mean, that includes the African-American community. That includes the Latinx community, the American Indian Native Alaskan community. I mean, the pandemic has impacted these vulnerable communities more than others. And this really underscores the profound disparities in health that, that we see in our, in our nation. So uh, we're gonna be looking to make health equity a cross-cutting issue in everything that we're doing. Uh, and of course, HRSA um, will be right at the table and uh, we'll be looking at the, uh, the way that community health centers can serve uh, to, to promote health equity itself and the way that they really do serve all communities, particularly vulnerable communities. Mm -hmm. uh, HRSA really is uh, the agency that outside of public health, people don't know much about, mm -hmm. but it is a, a very, very powerful agency in terms of its impact on many of these issues. And our community health centers are really a gem of our healthcare system. Well, thank you for that. And I wanna say we really appreciate the work of HRSA. We're all worried, sure. obviously, about the rise of the Delta mm -hmm. variant. We're so proud of the great work that's been done around vaccines. We're so worried about that last big group of people that haven't gotten vaccinated yet. And now we have the FDA with uh, you know, the warning about possible cardiac side effects among young people, though I understand from what I read anyway, more transient than uh, anything permanent. But what are the big concerns uh, at HHS as you all uh, come together every day to talk about latest vaccine developments, the rise of the Delta variant spread. What are you saying to people about what needs to happen next? 
Well, you know, under the president's leadership, we have made so much progress in terms of our vaccination effort. Um, 87% of all seniors have, um, have received it, getting yeah. at least one shot. 75% um, of individuals over 40 and 70% of individuals over, over 30. But we are having um, challenges uh, with younger people. We're having challenges with teens and particular challenges with young people 18 to 26 who might be somewhat complacent that they will not suffer the negative effects um, of COVID-19, um, especially in light of the, of the Delta variant that is incorrect. Um, the Delta variant is increasing in the United States. The Delta variant has been shown to be um, more contagious, mm -hmm. more transmissible than the previous variants. And there is evidence that it can be more virulent, meaning lead to more severe disease, more hospitalizations, and possibly more deaths. Um, and it will really impact any unvaccinated community, whether that's a geographic community or um, an age group. And so we are seeing more younger people who have gotten ill and have gotten and have gotten hospitalized. So, you know, the, the message is that these vaccines are safe. Mm -hmm. These vaccines are effective and they're more important than ever right now because of this Delta variant. Now, the, the issue in terms of, of, of the um, heart impacts really is very limited. Uh, the data from the, the CDC and, and, and that was reviewed by the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practice um, shows that, um, that if you look at you know, a, a million doses of the vaccine, there are um, uh, you know, maybe 20, 30, 50 young people who uh, might get a very, very mild and transient mm -hmm. uh, inflammation of the heart or myocarditis that will uh, go away either with no treatment or limited treatment within a short period of time. That's compared to hundreds and hundreds of young people out of a million that might contract COVID-19, several hundred that might be hospitalized, and a few that could even pass away. So the data is very clear that the benefits of the COVID-19 vaccine, the benefit of our safe and effective vaccines significantly outweigh any potential side effects, outweigh the risks. So the bottom line is that our vaccines are safe and in the face of the Delta variant, they are more important than ever. So really this is a call to action for people to get their vaccinations so we can, we can stop the spread of this dangerous variant of COVID-19. We're speaking today with Dr. Rachel Levine, Assistant Secretary for Health at the Department of Health and Human Services, the first openly transgender person to be confirmed by the United States Senate. You know, I want to go back to the pandemic. I think there's probably the only silver lining for some of us was the promotion of telehealth across the pandemic. Many of us have been waiting for it for a long time, and it really allowed many of us to build very robust systems uh, and, and reaching to vulnerable populations who hadn't been reached before. I saw that the Secretary Becerra was, uh, was advocating and supporting the work that's going on in telehealth. And I'm wondering if you could share with us how HHS is gonna provide ongoing support for the expansion of telehealth. I know you are very concerned about rural populations, uh, uh, the ability to do this by audio, as well as audio and video. So tell us about the types of investments that might be needed and uh, how do you see the potential payoff for the expansion of telehealth? Well, COVID-19 has really helped usher in a, a new era in, in terms of telehealth and, and telemedicine. And this is a priority of the secretary and a priority of my office. And we, we will work really across HHS 
on continuing uh, the, these advances in telehealth and systems. And so the federal government did put in many measures in place during COVID-19 to make telehealth easier. Uh, this does include uh, HIPAA flexibility for telehealth technology, uh, Medicare and Medicaid policies. So we're we'll working with CMS on that in terms of waivers and regulatory changes, making it easier for providers to deliver telehealth services to Medicare and Medicaid patients and to get reimbursed for that. Providers can uh, deliver telehealth services across state lines. So uh, there were telehealth licensing requirements and interstate compacts that were waived. Uh, prescribing controlled substances, including medication for opioid use disorders, such as Suboxone. So there are a lot of these measures. Uh, we're going to have a department-wide uh, group looking at which are the priority measures, which absolutely have to remain in place. Uh, another model that I wanted to, to kind of emphasize is a model that we used in Pennsylvania. It was first developed in New Mexico. Um, Project ECHO was developed by the University of New Mexico, and, it, and it's a, a guided practice model which really helps um, rural areas that are uh, serving underserved communities, uh, remote areas of Pennsylvania or remote areas of, of New Mexico and other states. Uh, it's a hub and spokes knowledge sharing approach where uh, content experts, expert teams, uh, for example, the University of New Mexico when it was first developed, but in Pennsylvania uh, at, at, at Penn State Health led virtual clinics. They would uh, talk to rural providers about delivering best in practice care. We use this in Pennsylvania first in terms of opioid um, treatment, but I know Penn State now is using it for COVID-19 evaluation and treatment and many, many other conditions. So it really is such an innovative way uh, to, to, use, uh, to, to use telehealth. But I do wanna emphasize something that you mentioned is that um, you know, we have to be careful of the healthcare disparities in terms of telehealth. Not everyone in our country, especially in rural areas have access to broadband. Not everybody has great computers like we're using right now to be able to do these type of visits. So auditory only telehealth is a very important aspect, which, which, which is a priority as well. You know, Margaret, uh, the doctor just mentioned our good friend Sanjeev Arora, <laughs> right. who we who we, worship, who we worship here. <laughs> Absolutely, and we couldn't agree more. When when people think about telehealth, thinking about that component of telehealth, about yes. how we move the needle forward for everybody is, uh, you know, in in in, uh, in this period of time when we've noted so many milestones, one of the milestones that we noted uh, recently here was the 40th anniversary of the AIDS epidemic. And we were honored to have Dr. Fauci uh, back on the show with us. And uh, it was very hopeful when he suggested, as we were talking about COVID and the vaccine, that the remarkable science and the years that went into developing that vaccine might also pave the way for a potential vaccine for HIV. And I think he said within a decade, which kind of took my breath away after 40 years. Um, can you talk about our efforts here in the United States and globally to address the ongoing epidemic of AIDS and perhaps to look forward to a day when we might end this epidemic? Well, thank you for that question. So, I mean, I started my, my residency program, my internship in New York City in 1983. Oh, really? at Mount Sinai Hospital. Now I was in pediatrics, so I saw a different side yeah. of the HIV AIDS epidemic. And what I saw primarily were, were infants that were impacted uh, because they got HIV from, from their mother who might've had HIV from a number of different causes. Um, and those infants passed away. Right. And then frequently their mother and potentially their father passed away. 
Um, and the HIV epidemic was devastating. And so we have made so much progress on so many fronts. Uh, HIV testing now is, is easy, it's fast, it's safe, it's confidential. And there are 1.2 million people approximately living with HIV um, and take their HIV medication, maybe one pill a day, that, that where it's a chronic illness, but they are living long, healthy lives and U equals U, undetectable means untransmissible. Uh, and they have essentially no risk of transmitting HIV to others. But we have a long way to go because you know one in eight still don't know they have HIV. So they're not able to access these life-saving medications and these needed services. So to really end the HIV epidemic, we, we really have to support not only those living with HIV that we know of and we're supporting with medication, but support the people who have undiagnosed HIV. We have to support them in terms of access to testing and to treatment services. This is a strong health equity issue. But we also have to continue to expand um, pre-exposure prophylaxis, mm -hmm. PrEP. I mean, we have a once a day medicine that can prevent someone from getting HIV. When I was an intern in 1983, that would have seemed like a miracle. And we have to continue to expand access to PrEP and to PEP post-exposure prophylaxis, syringe service programs. So, you know, ending the HIV epidemic is a core strategy uh, for the Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health. Uh, we seek to reduce new HIV infections by 90% by 2030. We talked about community health centers. They are a key component uh, to, to this effort. Uh, and these health centers has pres have prescribed PrEP to 63,000 patients. Uh, just this past March, HRSA announced nearly $99 million in funding through HRSA's Ryan White HIV AIDS program to expand access to HIV care, treatment, medication, and essential support services. So, you know, the Biden-Harris administration's remains committed to this funding, as well as, for example, the Ready, Set, PrEP program. So th these are priorities for the secretary, for myself, and across the, the administration. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Important uh, goals, but uh, good news uh, in terms of the work that's being done all across the country. You know, uh, we witnessed some disturbing trends in the wake of recent events, and we've seen some true assaults on science, and scientists like Dr. Fauci and yourself, and thank you for being a clarion voice and standing tall and speaking truth and science to power. And yet we, we see and over the last number of years that trust is eroded in some of our really revered uh, organizations like the CDC and uh, HHS. How do we address this misinformation campaigns that are really undermining the credible work that's being done by these agencies? in advancing public health and trying to save lives, especially during this? Well, I mean, COVID-19 has been much more challenging in the United States than it was in Pennsylvania, where I was the Secretary of Health, because it has been politicized. Um, and many aspects of our response to COVID-19, such as mask wearing, such as the vaccinations, have mm -hmm. been politicized. And, and that makes it much more difficult. These are public health issues. They're not political issues. And so we need to keep politics out of public health, and we need to continue to emphasize proven scientific methods, both for medicine and for public health. You know, as developed the scientific methods that have developed uh, these amazingly uh, effective vaccines that we're working to distribute, 
Um, so, you know, at HHS, uh, Dr. Fauci, myself, Dr. Walensky, uh, Dr. Murthy, our great Surgeon General, um, you know, we're going to work to get the best information out there to as many people as we possibly can and, and stick to the science to educate people about COVID-19 and other medical and public health issues. I, this is a particular priority of the Surgeon General to, uh, to, to counter misinformation that the public gets through social media and other ways. So um, I think that we can, and I firmly believe that we will learn the lessons from COVID-19 and we will build back a healthier future for all of us and, and to heal as a nation. For, for all those parents out there who, who have two to 12 year olds, when do you think we'll hear the results of the clinical trials that are going out and that those vaccines might be available for that age group? Well, first, it's important to emphasize that we have a safe and effective vaccine for 12 through 17 year olds. Yes. So right now, <clears throat> the Pfizer vaccine has the, the authorization from the FDA for teenagers 12 through 17. So I would certainly encourage all parents uh, to have their teens vaccinated, especially in the face of the, of the new Delta variant. So those clinical trials for younger children um, are going on right now for the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. Um, I can't put a date on science, so I can't tell you when those clinical trials will be completed and they'll be able to present their data uh, to the FDA for consideration and then to the CDC advisory committee for their consideration, hopefully by the end of 2021. Uh, but those studies are going on right now and we'll remain positive and optimistic that they will um, show uh, the safety and the effectiveness even for younger children. And we can start that vaccination and program as well. But we will await the science and the results of the clinical trials. Great. We've been speaking today with Dr. Rachel Levine, Assistant Secretary for Health at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Learn more about her work by going to hhs.gov forward slash ASH or follow her on Twitter at HHS underline ASH. Dr. Levine, we want to thank you for your innovations for your efforts advancing child and adolescent health and mental health, and for trailblazing a way forward for equity and inclusion for the LGBTQ community. And thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you, it was a pleasure to be here. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in US politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Thousands of pages of redacted emails to and from Dr. Anthony Fauci are now publicly available. Some of those messages have been distorted in viral posts, including emails about the effectiveness of hydroxychloroquine. Viral claims baselessly suggest that the emails prove Fauci lied to the public about hydroxychloroquine, an anti-malarial drug touted by former President Donald Trump in 2020. One story shared on Facebook points to a February 29th, 2020 email sent to former Vice President Mike Pence and copied to Fauci. In the email, two doctors suggest the drug could be effective against COVID-19 and suggest the U.S. government conduct or fund studies. 
Fauci forwarded the email to a deputy director who works in microbiology and infectious diseases, writing, quote, please take a look and respond to them. Thanks. In another February 2020 email, a pharmacologist at the FDA inquired with Fauci on whether there was any data to substantiate a publication from China that hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine could decrease COVID-19 infections and lung disease. Fauci wrote back, quote, there are no data in this brief report, and so I have no way of evaluating their claim. It's worth noting that the government did fund a study evaluating the drug's efficacy for patients hospitalized with the disease. That and a string of other studies did not find it helped hospitalized COVID-19 patients. That includes other randomized controlled trials, the gold standard in science. The FDA issued an emergency use authorization for hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine in March 2020, allowing adult and some adolescent patients hospitalized with COVID-19 to obtain the drugs from the strategic national stockpile if a clinical trial wasn't available. But the FDA revoked that authorization in June 2020, finding that the drug was, quote, unlikely to be effective in treating COVID-19 for the authorized uses. It also said that the known and potential benefits of the drugs no longer outweigh the risks. In short, the emails cited as a supposed smoking gun about hydroxychloroquine simply show that some people wrote to Fauci expressing the possibility that the drug could be effective against COVID-19. His responses show he engaged with the emails. They don't prove that hydroxychloroquine was an effective treatment against COVID-19 or that Fauci hid it from the public. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Pregnancy is normally an exciting time for most women, but according to the research, an estimated 10% of prenatal women experience some kind of depression during their pregnancy, and many are reluctant to treat their depression with medication for fear of harming the fetus. In fact, a higher percentage are experiencing lower-grade depressive symptoms, so they might not meet full criteria for a major depressive episode, but they're having significant symptoms that are getting in the way of feeling good, and left untreated, those mild to moderate symptoms can progress, in some cases lead to a more serious postpartum depression. Dr. Cynthia Battle is a psychologist at Brown University with a practice at Women's and Infants Hospital in Providence. She and her colleagues decided to test a cohort of pregnant women to see if a targeted prenatal yoga class, which combines exercise with mindfulness techniques, might have a positive impact on women dealing with prenatal depression. And it was a typical kind of hatha yoga that would include physical postures, breathing exercises, meditation exercises. And we enrolled 34 women who were pregnant who had clinical levels of depression. They all had medical clearance from their prenatal care providers, and they would come to classes 
And we measured their change in depressive symptoms over that period of time. Not only were women able to manage their depressive incidents, they also bonded with other pregnant women during the program and found additional support from their group. And the initial signs from this research are really encouraging. So we found that women on average were reporting that they were reporting much less. A larger study with control groups is being planned with the assistance of the National Institute of Mental Health. Women who are depressed during pregnancy, unfortunately, do often have less ideal birth outcomes. So one thing we're interested in seeing if when we provide prenatal yoga program, can it improve mood? And then can we even see some positive effects in terms of the birth outcomes? A guided non-medical yoga exercise program designed to assist pregnant women through depression symptoms, helping them successfully navigate those symptoms without medication ensuring a safer pregnancy and a healthier outcome for mother and baby. Now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com. Or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.